Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to part seven on our series on the Iroquois influence in the American Revolution. Last time, Caleb, we talked about Valley Forge and how the Oneida Nation had gone down to assist George Washington and Lafayette. That's right. George Washington was starving after a long, cold winter. And who knows what would have happened if Polly Cooper and 50 Oneida hadn't come down with a supply of corn to tie them over until the new formed American government could get them the supplies and resources that they needed. So now we're going to head back up into upstate New York and southern Pennsylvania and talk about what's happening back in the Six Nation homeland. Andrew, let's introduce our first new character to the story that's unfolding. This guy is a pretty amazing guy, and uh, I'll go ahead and give, give you one of his names. A lot of people knew him by the name of Good Peter. Was he a good guy? He was arguably a very good guy. He was an Oneida chief. He was also a devout Christian missionary. Now, Andrew, in some of our uh, past episodes, we mentioned a guy named Ebenezer Wheelock and Samuel Kirkland. And this guy, uh, Good Peter, he was actually converted by these people. And then they kind of gave him this English name, Good Peter, because he became a Christian and wanted to go out and spread good news to, to the world. And uh, ironically, uh, this doesn't tie into the story much, but he had a son. And you know what his son's name was? Good Peter Jr.? No, it was Bad Peter. It was actually Pagan Peter. Pagan Peter? And He uh, did not follow in his father's no, footsteps? No, he, he was not a Christian. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was so funny. Good, good Peter and Pagan Peter. But anyway, Andrew, this Oneida chief, there were some pretty amazing things about him. And one thing that popped out right away when people saw him was the color of his skin. I always thought he was an Oneida. What? He was an Oneida chief, and he had been raised an Oneida almost his entire life. But he was actually a German Palatine. What? Who had been captured and adopted and raised his entire life from childhood as an Oneida. He plucked all the hairs out of his face so that he didn't grow any stubble. He plucked them off his head so he just had, you know, like the Mohawk hairdo. He spoke fluent Oneida and the other Iroquoian dialects. He looked just like any other Oneida chief, but he was 100% European bloodline. I did not know that. Now, Good Peter, Andrew, also known as White Peter, he ties into the story here because we're going to see just like the Jesuits working with the French and the Indians up in Canada, sometimes it's very difficult for people to just stick to religion. And it's it seems like it's always been this with all the Christian denominations. You can't just stick to the teaching you're trying to do. You always have to pick a side. The Jesuits drove a lot of the Iroquois to side with the French and the ones that converted to a lot of the Christian faith sided with the English. And we're going to see that all over again here. We mentioned in our previous episode that Samuel Kirkland was influential in helping to steer the Oneida towards the American cause. And that would make sense since Good Peter was an Oneida himself. So he would fall into this grouping. Most likely, Good Peter, since he was a chief, he was probably the person that Kirkland was influencing. He had a very close friendship with him. I actually just sent Andrew a, an old 1700s letter that was written by Good Peter and sent to Kirkland and sent to Wheelock. And so they were, they were on very good terms. And maybe we'll even post the letter because you can really see the friendship between everybody when they do this. Good Peter, throughout the American Revolution, is going to work as a, a spy and messenger where he's going to be leaking information on troop movements and things like that in the heart of Iroquois and 
hand-delivering his reports to Philip Schuyler. The problem with this is, is he needs to be very careful not to get caught because he is going to be going under the guise of uh, delivering message to his missionary friends up in Connecticut. But in reality, he's going to be uh, making a stop over in Albany. Yeah, yeah, stopping in Albany along the way. Now, Andrew, Good Peter and some of these other chiefs having these relationships with the Americans is turning certain people off in their nation. So far, we've basically given the impression that all of the Oneida were for the Americans, but that's really not the case. Just like how not all of the Mohawks were probably for the British, they just kind of follow along. You see that in the American Civil War. You had people in the North that didn't give two licks about the slaves down South, and there were Southerners that had never owned a slave in their life going back generations that thought slavery was bad but didn't want to speak up about it because they didn't want to cause any trouble. And there's another people group in particular that are kind of uh, having second thoughts about this whole thing, and that's our old friends, the Tuscarora, which, if you remember, they have moved up, and they are still their own autonomous nation, but they're living within the borders of the Oneida. And they are kind of siding with the Oneida, but they don't really like the way that the wind is blowing in all this. Fifty Tuscarora come up to their Oneida friends and they say, "Uh, we are going on a fishing trip with the Seneca and uh, we will be back in a month. And uh, the Oneida say, well, why are you taking everything you own? So there is literally a good chunk of Tuscarora people Uh, that were planning on moving to Seneca country because they were thinking that the Americans aren't going to win this and the Oneida are going to be the people left without a hand to play. So everybody's doing damage control while this is going on. Meanwhile, good Peter is out 100 miles away delivering his message and there's a lot of unrest going on. Another colorful character, Caleb, was a person known as Deacon Thomas. And he also worked as a spy And he kind of took things to the next level. Not only was he a Christian who sided with the Americans, but he went up to Canada and he went to one of the Mohawk villages just on the Canadian side of the St. Lawrence River. He sneaks into the Mohawk head council house, hides in the rafters, and waits for the Mohawk leaders to start their meeting, where they discuss all the plans that the British have going on for the year. And so when the meeting is over, he quietly descends and heads back down, and he helps tip off the Americans and the Oneida to what Burgoyne's plans were for later that spring. He's another spy that we haven't had a chance to mention, but actually made a huge impact. Meanwhile, back in the Oneida nation, Philip Schuyler was informed that the Oneida were asking for more assistance. They were really worried that there would be an attack at any time, especially from Joseph Brandt, who was an influential man among the Mohawk. The Oneida asked if the Americans could build a fort in one of their towns, and that way, if they were ever attacked by the British or by Brandt or by anybody, they could flee into this palisaded fort and hole up there to be safe with their wives and children. Schuyler thought that that was a great idea, but things being what they are with politics, Schuyler says yes, But the colonial government never got around to it because Joseph Brandt is going to throw a wrench into everything. In May 1778, Brandt and 300 of his men set out from a staging base at the village of Oquaga. Now, Andrew, uh, my old Indian village names are a little rusty. Where is Oquaga? South Central New York. Okay, just so I got a little, uh, I can picture it in my mind. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is happening at about the same time as the Oneida are down with the Americans and maybe even walking back from Valley Forge. So on May 30th, they attack 
cobble skill, which is, again, south central New York. There's a settlement there of about 20 colonial families. And when I say settlement, I don't mean picture a small little town with houses clustered together. Picture a farm here and another half mile away, another farm and another farm after that. It's a very spread out settlement. But it was a very strategic place because there were these huge farms and a lot of these farmers were supplying food to the colonial army. They figure if they can hit them, this will really put a dent into Patriot forces. The local militia is tipped off that there might be an attack coming, and so they get about 40 Massachusetts volunteers to come over and help them out. But they don't know that Brant's coming with about 300 men. This is both Mohawk, Seneca, and British loyalists. So on the morning of May 30th, Brant lays out a trap. Yeah, somehow he must have gotten word that these militiamen were coming out to look for him. He has far superior forces, so he just decides to hide in the bushes, you know. They could probably defeat him in a man-to-man fight because they have the numbers, but why risk losing somebody? Uh, We can probably have more success if we just hide in the ditch and wait for these people to walk by. So they send out a dozen or so scouts. They're discovered by the local colonial militia, and then they instantly retreat, and the colonial militia press forward and run headlong into a trap. Brant totally surrounds the colonial company. Both commander and second-in-command are killed in the battle, as well as about half of the force. The colonials reorganize and try to head back to the settlement. Only five people are able to get to a house, which Brant just attacks and sets on fire, burning all five men alive. In total, they kill another 22 settlers, wound eight, and Brant captures five men. Brant's forces suffer no one killed, but just about 25 wounded. Now, what did he do with the prisoners that he took, Andrew? Well, he decides that they're going to burn them, and he has them go out and gather wood for their own funeral pyre. Yeah, that's that's not psychological torture. I don't know what is. <laughs> it's not. It's bad enough that we're going to be burned, but we have to go and get the wood ourselves to do it. So they've got the stacks of wood all set up around, and they've got the men in the middle, and they light the fire. And this one guy named Lieutenant Maynard starts standing up and he starts waving his hands really weird. And Joseph Brandt sees it and he instantly tells them to put out the fire and stop. That's right, Andrew. And this must have looked absolutely bizarre to everybody there. But if you remember a couple episodes back, we talked about Brandt going over to England and visiting the the royal court. And he becomes a member of the Stonemasons which, uh, you know, everybody, especially back in this time, it was a big deal. And I don't know if it's as big of a deal as people say, but obviously it was a big deal if you can get yourself out of being burned to death if you show that you're a Mason. And that's what he did. He did this secret hand signal that said, hey, I'm a Mason. You're a Mason. Help me out here, bud. So Brant stops everything, and he ends up letting all of them live. It's not going to be all peaches and cream because they still have to walk the some 400 miles up to Canada for imprisonment. And the guy that is spared on the way back starts feeling remorse and he actually confesses to Brant. He says, I'm not actually a Mason. I just knew the secret side. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he had an uncle that was a Mason, but I'm sure he was glad that he knew that secret hand signal. I, I wish I could find out exactly what the secret hand signal was. I know what it is but the Masons would be mad if I said it, but you can Google it if you want. (laughs) Supposedly, it's still in use today. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll have to remember that next time I'm about to be burned to death. (laughs) It's only to be used in dire circumstances of need. You know, it's not like 
you do the secret sign and they buy you a beer. It's like, I'm in mortal danger. Please help me. I'm a Mason. So the small group of people are taken back to Canada, but Brant stays back at Oquaga and he starts going through the countryside, finding any patriot homes that he can. He torches houses, barns, rounds up any livestock that he can get and tries to haul it back. Anything he can't haul back, he's killing and slaughtering. For the next few weeks, he's raiding up and down the Mohawk Valley. Then at the end of June, his ranks swell. He's got about 600 men consisting of Seneca, Cayuga, and more British loyalists, and they push south into Pennsylvania with John Butler. That name might sound familiar, Caleb, because we've mentioned him before. He was very influential at the Battle of Fort Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany. He was the group of those rangers we said that turned their coats inside out and tried to trick the Americans. They're known as Butler's Rangers, but it was kind of like a family affair. There was the head father, and then he had some sons and cousins and other neighbors that were all involved in this group. So when, you, when I say Butler, there's a lot of different Butlers. And there's going to be a Butler commander on the American side as well. So if you're ever reading, if you're confused, you're with us. So anyway, as they descend, on June 30th, they enter the Wyoming Valley. And when I say Wyoming Valley, I'm not talking about the state of Wyoming, Caleb. Are we clear on that? Yes. Okay. This is Wyoming Valley, Pennsylvania. And again, not to be confused with Wyoming, New York, which is nowhere near that. Are we on the same page here? Got it. All right. Wyoming Valley, to give you a modern sense, is about where Scranton Wilkes-Barre is. Butler forces two small forts to surrender. And then on July 3rd, they continue to another fort called Fort 40. I guess it was the 40th Fort, and a small group of Patriot forces had gathered there. Butler, it seems like that they do the same trick every time. Butler goes out, and suddenly they pretend to flee as if they're being chased off by the Americans in a relief force that are coming, but Butler tells the Seneca to lie in the bush and lie down flat, real quiet, not to be seen. The militia come racing out of the fort. To charge at the British regulars, they fire a few volleys at them, and then the Seneca rise up behind them and engage in hand-to-hand combat. And after 45 minutes, they've pretty much won the battle. About 60 Patriots manage to escape. Iroquois kill everybody else. Butler says that 227 scalps were taken that day. The next morning, the people inside the fort that are still holed up decide to surrender. Butler paroles them and makes them promise that they'll not come back and fight again. And then Butler heads back to Fort Niagara. Now, Andrew, in the aftermath of this, the Seneca are starting to get some bad press because in this attack, there's a lot of what we would call non-combatants, civilians, women and children, old men. Word has it that they're all being slaughtered out there. Everybody's quick to point their fingers at Brant and say that uh, he's the one responsible for it. Yeah, Patriot newspapers uh, start printing that Brant led this entire thing, and they, they called it the Wyoming Valley Massacre. And they give Brant this nickname, and they start calling him Monster Brant. Whenever you see his name published again in American papers, he's Monster Brant. And so they make him out to be this huge, massive guerrilla leader that's just hacking down women and children. But... There is a few holes with this, Caleb, and why is that? Why is Brant not really the monster of the Wyoming Valley Massacre? Well, it's kind of hard to be labeled the monster when you're not even there at the battle. Yeah, he was not there at all. He was still operating in the Mohawk Valley, and so these, what we would consider today, alleged war crimes are made out of whole cloth. Well, the travesties really happened. 
exists. Yes, but they were played up as well. And yeah, and Caleb and I, we've discussed about mentioning during this time period, who is the worst people. I think we mentioned in the French and Indian War, how after Fort William Henry, we talked about those horrible Indians that killed all the British as they fled away. But then Caleb, you read the story about the guy that got drawn and quartered in France the exact same year for stabbing the king, Uh showing that it was a violent time. And violence was committed all over the world in Europe, just like here. And again, when you've got newspapers and you've got people and you've got hearsay traveling from town to town, these stories tend to get blown up and they tend to get repeated and they tend to get exaggerated. So were women and children killed in these raids? Most definitely. Were there thousands of people killed in these raids? No. And was Brant involved in this raid? No. But... That doesn't mean Brant's not involved in other raids, and so we're going to talk about that. In September of 1778, Andrew, Brant launches a new wave of invasions into German flats, what we know today as uh, Herkimer, New York. This is kind of South Adirondack, Central New York region. Luckily for the civilians in the area is they were tipped off ahead of time that Brant was coming with all of his men. So they were able to flee So when Brant shows up, there's a lot of cows and a lot of horses and a lot of nice, pretty little farmhouses, but no people. So he has huge success as far as getting plunder and burning things, but very low civilian death rate. In fact, uh, he burned 63 houses, 59 barns, and also, Andrew, this is in September, so this is like peak harvest harvest season. So all of these barns are just full of grain, and he's trying to burn them, burn everything that he can't carry back. He captures 235 horses, 229 cattle, 279 sheep, 93 oxen, but only three people were killed. So I guess you could say that was a miracle in in one way, but it was still a pretty successful raid for him, and almost... 800 people became homeless after this. Now, Andrew, I mentioned that they were tipped off. Why don't you tell us who tipped them off? Yeah, um, a man named Lieutenant Helmer was out with about eight of his compatriot scouts, and they were just spying on Brandt's company to see what they were up to. And they end up getting captured, but he's able to escape. He's tied up, and Brandt is off in the Mohawk Valley raiding, and he's able to slip out of his knots And he starts heading off into anywhere and everywhere, stopping at every single home just enough to shout out, saying that, you know, Brant and the British are coming and everybody needs to flee for their lives now. Don't take anything. Just get out of here. And so he runs willy nilly through the hills and vales and mountains. He runs around for 30 straight miles. And when he's finally done, he's so exhausted that he sleeps for 36 hours straight. And we mention him briefly because He's the inspiration for one of the characters in the famous American novel, Drums Along the Mohawk. Ever heard of that novel? Have you read it? No. I actually have it on my queue, uh, but it's. I thought that was a, it's a fictional It's novel. a fictional, okay. but he's the guy that it's based on. Oh, okay. And it's it's set in this, it's a fictional story set in this event yeah. that's going on it, here. I started listening to it and uh, and then realized that it was just, you know, fan fantasy. So I'm just like, eh, I, I can't waste my time with this. Because of these raids, some people begin to point the fingers back at the Oneida. These American colonists are saying, the Oneida were helping the Mohawk in these raids. But as we could probably tell by now, the Oneida had nothing to do with this. If 
anything else, the United have been more faithful than many Americans have been to the American army. Nothing was further from the truth. And so when people went to complain at Fort Schuyler, Colonel Gansefort said, are you guys crazy? The Oneida are our closest friends. Get away from me. And one of the Oneida actually say to him, when your affairs were in a worse situation, you courted us, but now you're prosperous. You don't even know us. We are one. We made an agreement with General Schuyler and the other commissioners that we would be friendly and not strike the axe at each other. So Gansevoort says, oh, I'm so sorry. We are so sorry that we made you uneasy in any way. And I want to let you know that some badgers might say this. Do not regard it as all societies have their bad people among them. He's trying to walk them back from the edge of the cliff telling them that he really does care for them and does not want to do anything to offend them. I'm sure that he gave the people under his command a, a tongue lashing afterwards. The Oneida are pleased when they find out that Gansevoort and Schuyler have their back. And they approach them and say, you know what? Down in Pennsylvania, at the Battle of Barren Hill with Lafayette, we lost a few people. And we want to do a mourning war to get a few captives to adopt to replace them to help assuage our grief. As Brandt is traveling around the countryside pillaging, messages get back that Brandt is gone and Onondilla is totally undefended right now. So this might be the opportune time to launch a joint American Oneida attack. So on October 2nd, 1778, the Tuscarora and the Oneida forces led by Grasshopper, love that name, struck the town. They burned the homes. They burned the barns. You know, it's funny to picture Brant burning one town, taking all the stuff. Meanwhile, at their town, it's being burned and all their stuff's going to be taken. So it's probably going to wind up being an evil, even trade when everything's said and done. They could have all just stayed home and uh, would have been better off. They wind up with a ton of cattle. They took some prisoners. And they came across a, uh, a white prisoner named William Durgett and Brant had captured him and he was tied up in the village so they set him free but the Oneida did things a little different than Brant and his invasion and they made it very clear that we're not going to burn the fields we're not going to kill the old men in the village and we're not going to harm the women or children in the town because they said it was cowardly to do so they were just focused on this morning war ceremony. If you want to learn more about the morning war, go back to some of our first episodes and we talk about how this was significant to them. They wanted to just take a few prisoners to come back and they wanted to ritualistically adopt them to, to replace loved ones that they had lost throughout the war. And one of these men that's taken back, Grasshopper likes him so much that he adopts him as a son. Once they do the, the ceremony, the other surplus people are given to the Americans as POWs. So all in all, it was a pretty bloodless raid. On October 8th, a letter is written by George Washington to General John Stark. You remember he was one of the guys that was involved in the Saratoga campaign from New Hampshire and Vermont. And Washington writes, quote, I am very glad to hear of the blow struck by the Oneida Indians upon the rear of Brant's party. So Washington is keeping tabs on what's going on back in New York, and he's very pleased to see that the Oneida are still helping out in every way they can. Then, two weeks later, 266... Boy, numbers are really specific. Everybody's so great at record-keeping. Well, the, I think the logs are getting better now in the late 1700s. Back in some of our early episodes in the 15 and 1600s, you might have a sentence worth of information for a whole battle that went on. And yeah, now, now we, we're getting exact numbers. 
So 266 Americans and a few Oneida attack Okwaga in an early dawn raid. They burn every house except one, Caleb. And that is the home of our friend, Good Peter. Not bad Peter, Good Peter. Yep. It was actually originally an Oneida village, but Brant's forces had kind of come in and been occupying it, and so some of the Oneida there were kind of begrudgingly supporting the British, but not really, and many of them had fled over to the American side, and Good Peter had fled. But when they came through, they said, don't torch this house. So after gathering up all the livestock and heading out, the commander writes in his journal, quote, It was the finest Indian town I ever saw. On both sides of the river, there were about 40 good houses, with square logs and shingled, stone chimneys, good floor, and glass windows. Sounds like a pretty nice place to live. Picturesque village right on the edges of the river. And then it's burned to ashes. So after this, the Seneca and the Mohawk are ticked. And I would be too. I mean, we... We've been kind of covering this from, you know, we're Americans, Caleb, so we kind of look at this as the Oneida are the good guys and the Mohawk and the Seneca and the British are the bad guys and all this. But let's kind of refocus our glasses and think about this. If you look at it the other way, the Americans are good-for-nothing, ungrateful people that are rebelling against their king. Colonists are encroaching on our land, and now they've just burned several of our villages. So... What would we do in this situation? Do you think that we'd just sit back and rebuild our homes? Or do you think that we'd be launching strikes against the Americans? And this is where Brant finds himself into this situation. And so this is what helps build up to the next event, which is known as the Battle of Cherry Valley. Or if you're an American, the Cherry Valley Massacre. But let me step back a moment. In early November 1778, another Oneida warrior named Nicholas Sharp comes into the picture. And this guy had some other names as well. He was also known as Saucy Nick, or Lagatutai, which in Oneida means he continues speaking. So automatically, what do you think about this person if that's his Oneida name, and then you've got his uh, English nickname? His Oneida name is literally Loudmouth, and people call him Saucy Nick. So he probably was some sort of rascal. Oh, yeah. And he was involved later in his life in several questionable uh, murders. Anyway, he conveyed uh, intelligence to Peter Gansevoort at Fort Schuyler. He told Gansevoort that uh, the Onondaga had just returned from the Susquehanna Valley. He had described it as being a great meeting. There was just everybody who was anybody was there. All the Indian chiefs were there. All the Tory rangers and different political figures were there. And he said... They all agreed that they're going to attack Cherry Valley. Saucy Nick said, So as soon as I heard, I came straight to you. Gansefort wrote a quick letter and sent information to the rebel commander at Cherry Valley, telling uh, Colonel Ichabod Allen, Hey, they're on their way down. Get ready. And Allen got everybody all together, and they were waiting for Brant and the butlers when they arrived. Andrew, actually, he didn't do anything of the sort. And I wonder if it's because he found out that Saucy Nick delivered the message. But he just blows the whole thing off. He says, that rascal gave you that message. He's probably working for the enemy. We're not going to do anything differently than we're already doing. He didn't believe the information at all. He didn't even tell his officers to come in and reinforce his area. But then shortly after dawn on November 11th, 1778, the British forces began trickling in. 
and the attack on Cherry Valley was about to begin. Anybody outside the fort was killed by the British and pro-British Indian forces. Right to start with, 31 residents of the area, mostly women and children, were killed. And you may think to yourself, well, they targeted the women and children. Well, think of it this way. That's all that was home because all the American soldiers are off somewhere else right now. So that's all there is. Another 71 people are captured and taken prisoner. So if you look at it that way, yeah, 31 were killed, but 71 were not killed and just taken back. 26 Americans lost their lives, including Alden, and 14 soldiers were taken prisoner. Now, Brant was at this quote-unquote massacre when Butler attacked, and so everybody put the blame to Brant for the attack. But who's leading this thing? It's Colonel Butler, a British guy. So again, to put all of the blame onto Brant is not quite fair. Does he have a hand in this and is partially responsible? Yes, but he's not the only guy. But it is what it is. It could have all been avoided if people had just listened to Saucy Nick. And I'll mention real quick, it's said that Saucy Nick was inspiration for James Fedimore Cooper's character Wyandant in one of his uh, Leatherstocking books. So here's the question we're faced with, Caleb, and I've seen this question asked amongst members of the Six Nations as well. Is Joseph Brandt a hero or a villain? Honestly, Andrew, I don't think it's for us to say whether he is or not. I think that it's up to our listeners to look at the things he did and, and come to this, the decision on their own. I personally hope that if I'm ever going to be judged in history, people will look at my life and my intentions. My other brother, he's got a, a saying that I really like, and that's, we all want to be judged by our in intentions, but we always judge other people by their actions. I'll give Joseph Brandt the uh, the benefit of the doubt. And I'll ask people to give the Oneida the same benefit of the doubt. And this is not the last we're going to be talking about Brandt. He's going to be around for many more of our episodes. And so we get to see a lot of his life through the rest of this war. And we're going to see what happens in his life after the war. And if you've ever been to Canada, there's an entire town called Brantford. So that just gives you the kind of influence this man has to this day. When I posted on Facebook just the other day saying that we were going to be discussing great details about Joseph Brandt this week, several people instantly wrote and said, oh, he's one of my ancestors. Oh, he's, I'm descended from Molly Brandt. I'm related to him too. And like three people within a day had all said that they were descended from this guy. So his influence in American and Canadian history still reverberates to this day, even though he's a largely forgotten person among academic circles. I'll point out one other thing, Andrew, and that's William Johnson. If you listen to our narrative, he was in it for like eight episodes, and he was he was always kind of a hero to a lot of people, particularly a lot of the Iroquois nations. But a lot of the further western nations, the people who are having their land gobbled up basically to keep the Haudenosaunee in somewhat peaceful terms, they thought that he was an absolute crook. And then all of a sudden, he becomes a loyalist. So then when you're talking about this from an American standpoint, all of a sudden, this guy that you've been admiring for months and months of research, all of a sudden, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a Tory. He's a, he's a traitor. So I don't know. Try to. Luckily, this is in the past, so I, can put, I put this behind me. Some people might have more difficulty doing that. But I think that there's definitely things we can learn from both sides. 
And Andrew and I said right from the start when we started this podcast, this is human history. The majority of the people that fall into the puzzle are people that are just trying to do the best they can, live their own lives, raise their family. And I think that this is just another situation where, yes, you've got some people that are doing some terrible things on both sides, but the majority of the people are just trying to survive. The way we tell our story is we like to tell the why. Why did this happen? What were the things that led up to this? And that can help round out things versus just reading a bullet point that Joseph Brandt was the leader of the Cherry Valley Massacre. But when you find out why he did what he did, you kind of get a clearer picture. Now, next week, Andrew, we are going to get into something called the Sullivan Campaign. I imagine the Oneida are feeling pretty scared at this point. They've got enemies all around them. Also, you've got George Washington and a lot of the American generals thinking, what are we going to do about this section of our country that we're vulnerable from attack just coming down and funneling through? And we're going to see that uh, some ideas get brought up, but the Oneida are not informed on these. This is going to be done cagey style, where an expedition is going to be planned into Iroquois heartland, but it's going to be done without even their allies' knowledge. It's going to shake all six nations to their core. And again, we don't want to pass judgment on what happened, but we will explain why it happened.